Tertium Organum by P. D. Espensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 16. We know what man is only imperfectly. Our conceptions regarding him are extremely fallacious and easily create new illusions. First of all, we are inclined to regard man as a certain unity, and to regard the different parts and functions of man as being bound together and dependent on one another. Moreover, in the physical apparatus, in man visible, we see the cause of all his properties and actions. In reality, man is a very complicated something, and complicated in various meanings of the word. Many sides of the life of a man are not bound together among themselves at all, or are bound only by the fact that they belong to one man. But the life of man goes on simultaneously on different planes, as it were, while the phenomena of one plane only at times and partially touch those of another, and may not themselves touch at all. And the relations of the same man to the various sides of himself and to other men are entirely dissimilar. Man includes within himself all those three of the above-mentioned orders of phenomena, i.e. he represents in himself the combination of physical phenomena with those of life and of consciousness, and the mutual relations between these three orders of phenomena are infinitely more complex than we are accustomed to think. The phenomena of consciousness we feel, sense, and are conscious of in ourselves. Physical phenomena and the phenomena of life we observe and make conclusions about on the basis of experience. We do not sense the phenomena of the consciousness of others, i.e. the thoughts, feelings, and desires of another man but the fact that they exist in him we conclude from what he says and by analogy with ourselves. We know that in ourselves certain actions, certain thoughts and feelings proceed and when we observe the same actions in another man we conclude that he thought and felt like us. Analogy with ourselves. This is our sole criterion and method of reasoning and drawing conclusions about the phenomena of consciousness in other men if we cannot communicate with them or do not wish to believe in what they tell us about themselves. Suppose that I should live among men without the possibility of communicating with them and having no way to make the communications based upon analogy. In that case, I should be surrounded by moving and action ottomans. The cause, the purpose and meaning of those actions would be perfectly incomprehensible to me. Perhaps I would explain their actions by molecular motion, perhaps by the influence of the planets, perhaps by spiritism, i.e. by the influence of spirits, possibly by chance or by a haphazard combination of causes. But in any case I should not and could not see the consciousness in the depth of these men's actions. Concerning the existence of consciousness, I can usually only conclude by analogy with myself. I know that certain phenomena are connected in me with my possession of consciousness. When I see the same phenomena in another man, I conclude that he also possesses consciousness. But I cannot convince myself directly of the existence of consciousness in another man. Studying man from one side only, I should stand in the same position in relation to him as, according to Kant, we stand with relation to the world surrounding us. We know merely the form of our knowledge of it. The world in itself we do not know. Thus for the knowledge of man in himself, i.e. his consciousness, I have two methods, the analogy with myself and the intercourse of my consciousness with the consciousness of another by the exchange of thoughts. Without this, man is for me merely a phenomenon, a moving ornament. The noumenon of a man is his consciousness together with everything his consciousness includes within itself 
and that with which it unites him. In man are open to us both worlds, though the noumenal world is open only slightly, because it is cognized by us through the phenomenal. Noumenal means apprehended by the mind, and the characteristic property of the things of the noumenal world is that they cannot be comprehended by the same method by which the things of the phenomenal world are comprehended. We may speculate about the things of the noumenal world, we may discover them by a process of reasoning and by means of analogy, we may feel them and enter into some sort of communication with them, but we can neither see, hear, touch, weigh, measure them, nor can we photograph them or decompose them into chemical elements or number their vibrations. The noumenal world, or the world of causes, is for us the world of metaphysical facts. Thus consciousness, with all its functions and with all its contents, thoughts, feelings, desires, will, relates itself to the metaphysical world. We cannot know even a single element of consciousness objectively. Emotion as such is a thing which it is impossible to see, just as it is impossible to see the value of a coin. You can see a stamp upon a coin, but you can never see its value. It is just as impossible to photograph thought as it is to imagine Egyptian darkness in a vial. To think otherwise, to experiment with the photographing of thought, simply means to be unable to think logically. On a phonographic record are the tracings of the needle, elevations and depressions, but there is no sound. He who holds a phonographic record to his ear, hoping to hear something, will be sure to listen in vain. Including within himself two worlds, the phenomenal and the noumenal, man gives us the opportunity to understand in what relation these worlds stand to one another everywhere throughout nature. We have already arrived at the conclusion that the noumenon of a thing consists in its function in another sphere, in its meaning which is incomprehensible in a given section of the world. And Dispensky has asterisked this. The expression section of the world is taken as an indicator of the unreality of the forms of each section. The world is infinite and all forms are infinite, but to grasp them with the finite brain consciousness, i.e. by consciousness reflected in the brain, we must imagine the infinite forms as being finite, and these are the sections of the world. The world is one, but the number of possible sections is infinite. Let us imagine an apple. It is one, but we may imagine an infinite number of sections in all directions, and these sections will differ from one another. But if instead of the apple we take a more complicated body, for instance the body of some animal, then the sections taken in different directions will be even more unlike one another. End of asterisk. Next we came to the conclusion that the number of meanings of one and the same thing in different sections of the world must be infinitely great and infinitely various that it must become its own opposite. Return again to the beginning, from our standpoint, etc., etc., infinitely expanding, contracting again, and so forth. It is necessary to remember that the noumenon of the phenomenon are not different things, but merely different aspects of one and the same thing. Thus the phenomenon is the finite expression, in the sphere of our knowledge through the organs of sense, of the infinite noumenon. From our standpoint, we can equally say that a certain phenomenon, or a certain group of phenomena, from the side of noumena, is expressed by the consciousness of some infinite and multifarious substance, or that an infinite or infinitely multifarious consciousness is expressed to us by that or another definite phenomenon. A phenomenon is the three-dimensional expression of a given noumenon. This three-dimensionality depends upon the three-dimensional form of our knowledge, 
i.e. speaking simply upon our brains, nerves, eyes and fingertips. In man we have found that his noumenon is consciousness, and that therefore in consciousness lies the solution to the riddle of the functions and meanings of man which are incomprehensible from an outside point of view. What is the consciousness of man if it is not his function, incomprehensible in the three-dimensional section of the world? Truly, if we shall study and observe man by all accessible means, objectively, from without, we shall never discover his consciousness, and shall never define the function of his consciousness. We must first of all become aware of our own consciousness, and then either begin a conversation, by signs, gestures, words, with another man, begin to exchange thoughts with him, and from his answers deduce the conclusions that he possesses consciousness, or come to the conclusion about it from external indications, actions similar to ours or similar circumstances. But the direct method of objective investigation, without the help of speech or without the help of conclusions based upon analogy, we shall not discover the consciousness of another man. That which is inaccessible to the direct method of investigation but exists is noumenal. Consequently, we shall not be in a position to define the functions and meanings of man in another section of the world than that world of Euclidean geometry, solely accessible to the direct methods of investigation. Therefore, we have a perfect right to regard the consciousness of man as the function in some section of the world different from the three-dimensional section wherein the body of man functions. Having established this much, we must ask ourselves the question, have we not the right to make the reverse conclusion and regard as their consciousness the to us unknown function of the world and of things outside of their three-dimensional section? A usual positivistic view regards consciousness as a function of the brain. Without a brain, we cannot imagine consciousness. Max Nordau, when he wanted to imagine the world's consciousness, in paradoxes, was obliged to say that we cannot be certain that somewhere in the infinite space of the universe is not the repeated, on the grandiose scale, the same combination of physical and chemical elements as constitutes our brains. This is very characteristic and typical of positive science. Desiring to imagine the world's consciousness, positivism is first of all forced to imagine a gigantic brain. Does not this at once savour the two-dimensional or plane world? Surely the idea of a gigantic brain somewhere beyond the stars reveals the appalling poverty and impotence of positivistic thought. This thought cannot leave its usual grooves. It has no wings for the soaring flight. Let us imagine that some curious inhabitant of Europe in the 17th century should try to foresee the means of transportation in the 20th century and should picture himself on an enormous stagecoach, large as a hotel, harnessed by 1,000 horses. He would be pretty near the truth, but at the same time infinitely far from it. And yet even in this time some minds which foresaw along correct lines already existed. Already the idea of the steam engine had been broached and models were appearing. The thought expressed by Nordau remains one of a favourite concept of popular philosophy, that the planets and satellites of the solar system are merely molecules of some tremendous organism, an insignificant part of which that system represents. Perhaps the entire universe is located on the tip of the little finger of some gigantic being, says such a philosophizer, and perhaps our molecules are also worlds. The juice. Perhaps my little finger there are several universes too. 
and such a philosophizer gets frightened, but all such reasonings are merely the gigantic stagecoach over again. This is the way a little girl thought about whom I was reading, if I mistake not, in the Theosophical Review. The girl was sitting near the fireplace, and beside her slept a cat. Well, the cat is sleeping, the girl reflected. Perhaps she sees in a dream that she is not a cat, but a little girl. And maybe I am not a little girl at all, but a cat, and only see in a dream that I am a little girl. The next moment the house resounds with a violent cry, and the parents of the little girl have a hard time to convince her that she is not a cat, but really a little girl. All this shows that it is necessary to philosophise with a certain amount of skill. Our thought is encompassed by many blind alleys, and positivism is itself such a blind alley. Our analysis of phenomena, the relation which we have shown to exist between physical phenomena and those of life and of consciousness, permits us to assert quite definitely that the phenomena of consciousness cannot be a function of the brain i.e. a function of psychological and physical phenomena, or phenomena of a lower order. We established that the higher cannot be a function of the lower, and this division into higher and lower is also based upon a clear fact of the different potentialities of various orders of phenomena, of the different amount of latent force contained in them, or liberated from them. And of course, we have the right to call those phenomena the higher, which possess immeasurably greater potentiality, immeasurably more latent force, and to call those the lower, which possess less potentiality, less latent force. The phenomena of life are the higher in comparison with physical phenomena. The phenomena of consciousness are the higher in comparison with the phenomena of life and physical phenomena. Which must be the function of which is clear? Without making a palpable logic mistake, we cannot declare life and consciousness to be dependent functionally on physical phenomena, i.e. to be the result of physical phenomena. The truth is quite the opposite of this. Everything forces us to recognise physical phenomena as the result of life, and life as the result of consciousness. But of which life, and of which consciousness? Here lies the question. Of course, it would be absurd to regard our planetary sphere as a function of the vegetable and animal life proceeding upon it, and the visible stellar universe as a function of human consciousness. But nothing of this sort is meant. In the occult understanding of things, we speak always of another life and another consciousness, the particular manifestation of which is our life and our consciousness. It is important to establish the general principle that physical phenomena, being the lower, depend upon the phenomena of life and of consciousness, which are higher. If we admit this principle as established, then it is possible to proceed further. The first question which arises is this. In what relation does the consciousness of man stand to his body and his brain? This question has been answered differently in different times. Consciousness has been regarded as a direct function of the brain. Thought is the motion of brain substance. Thus, of course, denying any possibility of consciousness without the existence of the brain. Then followed the attempt to establish a parallelism between the activity of consciousness and of the brain. But the nature of this parallelism has always remained obscure. Yes, evidently, the brain works parallel to consciousness. An arrestment or a disorder of the activity of the brain brings as a consequence a visible arrestment or disorder of the activity of consciousness. But after all, the activity of the brain is merely motion, i.e. an objective phenomenon, 
whereas the activity of consciousness is a phenomenon objectively undefinable, subjective, and at the same time more powerful than anything objective. How shall we reconcile all this? Let us endeavour to consider the activity of the brain and the activity of consciousness from the standpoint of the evidence that two data, the world and consciousness, accepted by us at the very beginning. If we consider the brain from the standpoint of consciousness, then the brain will be part of the world, i.e. part of the outer world lying outside of consciousness. Therefore, consciousness and brain are different things. But consciousness, as experience and observation shows, can act only through the brain. The brain is that necessary prism passing through which consciousness manifests itself to us as intellect. Or to put it a little differently, the brain is a mirror reflecting consciousness in our three-dimensional section of the world. This last means that in our three-dimensional section of the world, not all of consciousness, the true dimensions of which we do not know, is acting, but only so much of it as can be reflected in the brain. It is clear that if the mirror be broken, then the image will be broken too, or if the mirror be injured or imperfect, then the reflection will be blurred or distorted. But there is absolutely no reason to believe that when the mirror is broken, the object which it reflects is thereby destroyed, i.e., in the given case, consciousness. Consciousness cannot suffer from any disorder of the brain, but the manifestations of it may suffer very much, or may even disappear from the field of our observation altogether. Therefore, it is clear that a disorder in the activity of the brain causes an enfeeblement or a distortion, or even a complete disappearance of the faculties of consciousness manifesting in our sphere. The idea of the comparison between a three-dimensional body and a four-dimensional one enables us to affirm that not all the activity of consciousness goes through the brain, but a part of it only. The brain is clearly a three-dimensional body, and as such, unreal. Consciousness is something having no dimensions or many, real in any case. So how can the real disappear with the destruction of the unreal? And Dispensky quotes from Frederick Meyer's essay on the subliminal consciousness as quoted in William James' The Varieties of Religious Experience. And the quote is as follows. Each of us is in reality an abiding psychical entity, far more extensive than he knows an individuality which can never express itself completely through any corporeal manifestation. The self manifests through the organism, but there is always some part of the self unmanifested. End of quote. And Dispensky continues. The positivist will remain unconvinced. He will say, Prove to me that consciousness can act without a brain. Then I will believe it. I shall answer him by the question, What in the given case, will constitute a proof. There are no proofs, and there cannot be any. The existence of consciousness without a brain, if that be possible, is for a metaphysical fact, which cannot be proven like a physical one. And if my opinion will reason sincerely, then we will be convinced that there can be no proof, because he himself has no means of being convinced of the existence of consciousness acting independent of a brain. Let us assume the consciousness of a dead man, i.e. a man whose brain has ceased to act, continues to function. How can we convince ourselves of this? By no possible means whatsoever. We have means of communication, speech, writing, with consciousness, which are in conditions similar to our own, 
i.e. acting through brains, concerning the existence of those same consciousnesses, we can conclude by analogy with ourselves. But concerning the existence of other consciousnesses, whether they do or they do not exist is immaterial. There are no means whereby we convince ourselves that they exist. It is exactly this last that gives us a key to the understanding of the true relation of consciousness to the brain. Our consciousness being the reflection of consciousness from the brain, we can observe as consciousness only those reflections which are similar to itself. We have before established that we can make conclusions concerning consciousness other than our own from the exchange of thoughts with them and from analogies with ourselves. Now we may add to this that for this very reason we can know only about the existence of consciousness similar to our own and we cannot know any other consciousnesses at all whether they exist or not unless we ourselves enter their plane. Should we ever realise our consciousness not only as it is reflected from the brain, but in a condition more universal. Simultaneously with this, the possibility would open up of discovering consciousnesses analogical to ours, which are not reflected from the brain, if such exist in nature. But do such consciousnesses exist or not? How can we gain information on this point with our consciousness such as it is now? Observing the world from our standpoint, we perceive it in actions proceeding from rational conscious causes, such as the work of a man, and other actions proceeding from unconscious blind forces of nature, such as the movement of waves, the ebbing and flowing of the tide, the descent of great rivers, etc., etc. In such a division of observed actions into rational and unreasoned, there is something naive, even from the positivistic standpoint. For if we have learned anything from the study of nature, if the positivistic method has given us anything at all, then it is the assurance of the necessity for the uniformity of phenomena. We know, and with great certainty, that things basically similar cannot proceed from dissimilar causes. Positive philosophy knows this too. Therefore it regards the foregoing division as naive, and conscious of the impossibility of such dualism that one part of observed phenomena proceed from rational and conscious causes and another part from unreasoned and unconscious ones. Positivistic philosophy strives to explain everything as proceeding from causes which are irrational and unconscious. Positivistic philosophy holds that the seeming rationality of human actions is a miserable illusion and a self-consolation. Man is a toy in the hands of elemental forces. He is merely a transforming station of forces. All that which, as it seems to him, he is doing, is in reality done instead by external forces which enter him through air, food, sunlight. Man does not perform a single action by himself. He is merely a prism in which a line of action is refracted in a certain manner. But just as the beam of light does not proceed from the prism, so action does not proceed from the reason of man. The famous theoretical experiment of certain German psychophysiologists is usually advanced in confirmation of this. They affirmed that if it were possible, from the time of birth, to deprive a man of all external impressions, light, sound, touch, heat, cold, etc., and at the same time preserve him alive, then such a man would not be able to perform even the most insignificant action. From this it follows that man is Nortman, like that ottoman projected by the American inventor Tesla, 
which, obeying electric currents and vibrations coming from a great distance without wires, was calculated to execute a whole series of complicated movements. It follows from this that all the actions of a man depend upon outer impulses. From the smallest reflex, outer irritation is necessary. For more complex action, a whole series of preceding complex irritations is necessary. Sometimes between the irritation and the action a considerable time elapses, and a man does not feel any connection between the two. Therefore, he regards his actions as voluntary, though in reality there are no voluntary actions at all. Man cannot do anything by himself, just as a stone cannot jump voluntarily. It is necessary that something should throw it up. Man needs something to give him an impulse, and then he will develop exactly so much force as such an impulse, and all the preceding impulses, put into him, and no trifle more. Such is the teaching of positivism. From the standpoint of logic, such a theory is more correct than the theory of two classes of actions, reasoned and unreasoned. It at least establishes the principle of necessary uniformity. It is really impossible to suppose that in an immense machine certain parts move according to their own desire and reasoning. There must be something uniform, either all the parts of the machine possess a consciousness of their function and act according to this consciousness, or all are worked from one motor and are driven by one transmission. The enormous service performed by positivism is that it established this principle of uniformity. It is left to us to define in what this uniformity consists. The positivistic hypothesis of the world considers that the basis of everything is unconscious energy, which arose from unknown causes at a time that it is not known. This energy, after it has passed through a whole series of invisible electromagnetic and physico-chemical processes, is expressed for us in visible and sensed motion, then in growth, i.e. in the phenomena of life, and at last in consciousness. This view has been already investigated, and the conclusion reached that it is impossible to regard physical phenomena as the cause of the phenomena of consciousness, while on the other hand the phenomena of consciousness serve as an undoubted cause for a great number of physical phenomena observed by us. Then, from the very essence of the idea of motion, which is the foundation of the physico-mechanical world, was deduced the conclusion that motion is not an entirely obvious thing, that the idea of motion arose in us because of the limitation and incompleteness of our sense of space, a slit through which we observe the world. And it was established that the idea of time is deduced from the observation of motion, and that the idea of motion results from our time sense, and that the idea of motion is quite definitely the function of the time sense, which in itself is a limit or boundary of the space sense belonging to the being of a given psyche. It was also established that the idea of motion could arise out of a comparison between two different fields of consciousness. And in general, all analysis of the fundamental categories of our knowledge of the world, space and time, showed that we have absolutely no data whatever for accepting motion as the fundamental principle of the world. And if this is so, if it is impossible to assume behind the scenes of the creation of the world the presence of an unconscious mechanical motor, then it is necessary to consider the cosmos as living and conscious. Because one or the other of two things must be true. Either it is mechanical and dead, accidental, or it is living and conscious of itself. There can be nothing dead in living nature, and there can be nothing living in dead nature. 
and Dispensky quotes from Schopenhauer in his Councils and Maxims. Nature exhibits a continual progress starting from the mechanical and chemical activity of the inorganic world, proceeding to the vegetable with its dull enjoyment of self, from that to the animal world, where intelligence and consciousness began at first very weak, and only after many intermediate stages attaining its last great development in man, whose intellect is nature's crowning point, the goal of all her efforts, the most perfect and difficult of all her works. And Dispensky continues, So writes Schopenhauer in his Councils and Maxims, and indeed it is very effectively expressed, but we have no foundation whatsoever for regarding man as the summit of that which nature has created. This is only the highest that we know. Schopenhauer's thought is doubtless very beautiful, but nevertheless it is necessary to admit that in nature, conscious and unconscious can exist together. There must be something which is one. Positivism would be absolutely correct in its picture of the world. There would not be even the smallest deficiency, if there were no consciousness in the world. Then it would be necessary, Nolans Volans, to regard the universe as an accidentally self-created mechanical toy in space and nothing more. But the fact of the existence of consciousness spoils all the statistics. It is impossible to exclude it. We are either forced to admit the existence of two principles, consciousness and motion, spirit and matter, or to select one of them. Then dualism annihilates itself, because if we admit the separate existence of spirit and matter, and reason further on this basis, it will be inevitably necessary to conclude either that spirit is unreal and matter real, or that matter is unreal and spirit real, i.e. either that spirit is material or that matter is spiritual. Consequently, it is necessary to select some one thing, spirit or matter. But to think really monistically is considerably more difficult than it seems. I have met many men who have called themselves monists, and sincerely considered themselves as such, but in reality they never departed from the most naive dualism, and no spark of understanding of the world's unity ever flashed upon them. Materialism, regarded as the basis of everything, motion or energy, can never be monistic. It is not possible to annihilate consciousness. This is unfortunate for materialism. If it were able to annihilate consciousness completely, then everything would be splendid and the universe would be something like an accidentally self-created mechanical toy. But to its sorrow, materialism cannot deny consciousness. It can only try to degrade it as low as possible, calling it the reflection of reality, the substance of which consists of motion. But how deal with the fact that the reflection possesses in its case an infinitely greater potentiality than the reality? How can this be? From what does this reality reflect, or what is it refracted in, that in its reflected state it possesses infinitely greater potentiality than in its original state? The consistent materialistic monist will be forced to say that reality reflects from itself, i.e. one motion reflects from another motion. But this is merely dialectics, and it fails to make clear the nature of consciousness, for consciousness is something other than motion. No matter how hard we try to define consciousness in terms of motion, we nevertheless know that they are two different things, different as regard our receptivity of them, belonging to different worlds, incommensurable, and which can exist simultaneously. 
Moreover, consciousness can exist without motion, but motion cannot exist without consciousness, because out of consciousness comes the necessary condition of motion, time. No consciousness, no time. No time, no motion. We cannot escape this fact, and thinking logically, we must inevitably recognise two principles. But if we begin to consider the very recognition of two principles as illogical, then we must recognise consciousness as a single principle, and motion as an illusion of consciousness. But what does this mean? It means that there can be no monistic materialism. Materialism can be only dualistic, i.e. it must recognise two principles, motion and consciousness. As soon as it comes to recognise one principle, it becomes idealism, metaphysics. But in order to think idealistically, it is necessary that idealism be not dualistic, because just as monistic materialism is impossible, so is dualistic idealism equally impossible. But in order to come to pure and strict monistic idealism, a profound and fundamental construction of all our concepts is necessary. Here, a new difficulty arises. Our concepts are limited by language. Our language is deeply dualistic. This is indeed a terrible obstacle. I showed previously how language retards our thought, making it impossible to express the relations of a being universe. In our language, only an eternally becoming universe exists. The eternal now cannot be expressed in language. Thus our language pictures to us beforehand a false universe, dual, when in reality it is one, and eternally becoming, when it is in reality eternally being. And if we come to realise the degree to which our language falsifies the real view of the world, then the understanding of this fact will enable us to see that it is not only difficult, but even absolutely impossible to express in language the correct relation of things of the real world. This difficulty can be conquered only by the formation of new concepts and by extended analogies. Later on, the principles and methods of this expansion of what we already have and what we can extract from our stores of knowledge will be made clear. For the present, it is only important to establish one thing, the necessity for uniformity, the monism of the universe. As a matter of principle, it is not important which one we regard as first cause, spirit or matter. It is essential we recognise their unity. But it has been shown before that the materialistic conception of the universe leads to considerable inconveniences. These inconveniences generally consist of the fact that regarding the spiritual world as material, man at the same time imagines it as three-dimensional. And the three-dimensional conception of the spiritual world, in various spiritualistic and theosophical theories, this is clearly an absurdity, and it leads in turn to other absurdities. Therefore, in the interest of correct thinking, it is necessary once and for all to recognise spirit, i.e. consciousness, as the first cause. This will prevent many unnecessary wanderings in roundabout paths and blind alleys. For, if we recognise the existence of consciousness in general, then it is necessary to recognise that there exists only one consciousness and nothing else. But the positivist will ask, what then is matter? From one point of view, it is a logical concept, i.e. a form of thinking, I shall answer. Nobody ever saw matter, nor will they ever. It is possible only to think matter. From another point of view, it is an illusion accepted for reality. 
Even more truly, it is the incorrectly perceived form of that which exists in reality. Matter is a section of something, a non-existent imaginary section. But that of which matter is a section exists. This is the real four-dimensional world. But this wood, the substance from which this table is made, does it exist? It exists, but the true nature of its existence we do not know. All that we know about it is just the form of our receptivity of it. But if we cease to exist, would it continue to exist? Yes, for consciousnesses working in conditions of receptivity analogous to ours, it will exist in the same form as for us. But in itself, this substance exists in some other way. How, we do not know. Certainly not in space and time, for we ourselves impose these forms upon it. Probably, all similar would, all different centuries and different parts of the world constitutes one mass, one body, perhaps one being. Certainly that substance, or that part of it, of which this table is made, has no separate existence apart from our receptivity. We fail to understand that a particular thing is merely an artificial definition by our senses of some indefinable cause infinitely surpassing that thing. But a thing may acquire its own individual and unique soul, and in that case the thing exists quite independently of our receptivity. Many things possess such souls, especially old things, old houses, old books, works of art, etc. We may consider the fact as established that we cannot know of the existence of another consciousness directly, except through communication with it by speech and by conclusions based upon analogy. But what ground do we have for thinking that there are consciousnesses in the world other than our human ones, the limited consciousnesses of animals, and the semi-consciousnesses of plants? First of all, the circumstance that if such consciousnesses exist, we, with our means, could not know anything about them. Of course there is no proof of their existence, but it explains why we do not know of them if they exist. Also, the circumstance that we know of the existence of consciousnesses only in our section of the world and below, men, animals, plants. Indeed, we have no reason whatsoever to think that in the higher section of the world, i.e. in four-dimensional space, there are no consciousnesses. On the contrary, everything logically points to the conclusion that they must exist and they must be more powerful than ours. And last of all these considerations, we know that the world is consciousness, that everything in it is conscious, and in general there is nothing unconscious in it, nor can there be. But when all is said, the most important thing is that we can have no reason to regard our consciousness as unique and the highest form of consciousness in the universe. The question now stands in this way. How can we know about the existence of the consciousness of other sections of the world, of higher space, if they exist. By two methods, through communication with them and through conclusions by analogy. For the first, it is necessary that our consciousness should become similar to theirs, should transcend the limits of the three-dimensional world, and it is necessary to change the form of consciousness. The second may result as a consequence of the gradual expansion of the faculty of drawing inferences by analogy. By trying to think out of the usual categories, by trying to look at things and at ourselves in a new light, by trying to liberate our consciousness from its accustomed chains of perception in time and space, 
Little by little, we begin to notice analogies between things which we did not notice before. Our mind grows, and with it grows up the power to discover analogies. This ability, with each new step attained, expands and enriches the mind. Each minute we advance more rapidly. Each new step makes the next more easy. Our consciousness becomes different. Then, applying to itself its expanded ability to construct analogies, and looking about, consciousness suddenly perceives round about itself a series of consciousnesses of the existence of which it was previously unaware. And our consciousness understands the reason for this unawareness, and not to that which our consciousness is native. Thus, in this case, simply the ability to discover new analogies translates our consciousness into another plane of existence. The consciousness of a man begins to penetrate into the world of the noumena, which is in affinity with it. Then his point of view changes likewise with regards to the things and events of the phenomenal world. Phenomena may suddenly assume, to his eyes, quite different grouping. As already said, similar things may be different from one another in reality. Different things may be similar. Quite separate, disconnected things may be part of a great whole, of some entirely new category. And things which appear inextricably united into one, constituting one whole, may in reality be manifestations of different consciousnesses, having nothing in common among themselves, even knowing nothing whatsoever about the existence of one another. Such, indeed, may be any whole of our world, man, animal, planet, planetary system, i.e. consisting of different consciousnesses, a battlefield, as it were, of warring consciousnesses. In each whole of our world we perceive a multitude of opposing tendencies, aspirations, efforts. Each aggregate is, as it were, an arena of struggle for multitudes of opposing forces, each of which acts by itself, is directed to its own goal, usually to the disruption of the whole. But the interaction of these forces represents the life of the whole, and in everything something is always acting which limits the activity of separate tendencies. This something is the consciousness of the whole. We cannot establish the existence of such a consciousness by analogy with ourselves, or by intercourse with it, or by exchange of thoughts, but a new path opens before us. We perceive a certain separate and quite definite function, the preservation of the whole. Behind this function we infer a certain separate something. A separate something having a definite function is impossible without consciousness. If the whole possesses consciousness, then the separate tendencies or forces must also possess consciousness. A body or organism is the point of intersection of the lines of these consciousnesses, a place of meeting, perhaps a battlefield. Our I, and that is the letter I, is also that battlefield on which this or that emotion, this or that habit or inclination, gains an advantage, subjecting to itself all the rest of every given moment, and identifying itself with the I. Again, capital letter I. But also the I is a being, having its own life, imperfectly conscious of that of which itself consists, and identifying itself with this or another portion of itself. Have we any warrant for supposing that the organs and members of the body, thoughts and emotions, are beings also? We have, because we know that there exists nothing unconscious, and any something having a separate function 
must have a separate consciousness and can be called a being. All the consciousnesses assumed by us to exist in the world of many dimensions cannot know one another, i.e. cannot know that we are binding them together in different holes in our phenomenal world, just as in general they cannot know our phenomenal world and its relations. But they must be conscious of themselves, although it is impossible for us to define the degree of clearness of this consciousness. It may be clearer than ours, it may be more vague, dreamlike as it were. Between consciousnesses there may be a continuous but imperfectly perceived exchange of thoughts, analogous to the exchange of substance in a living organism. They may experience certain feelings in common. Certain thoughts may arise in them spontaneously, as it were, under the influence of general causes. Upon the lines of this communication, consciousnesses must divide themselves into different wholes of some category to us entirely incomprehensible, or only guessed at. The essence of each separate consciousness must consist in its knowledge of itself and its nearest functions and relations. It must feel things analogous to itself and must have the faculty of telling about itself and them, i.e. this consciousness must always behold a picture of itself and its conditioning relations. It is eternally studying this picture and instantly communicating it to another consciousness coming in communion with it. Whether these consciousnesses in sections of the world other than ours exist or not, we, under the existing conditions of our receptivity, cannot say. They can be sensed only by the developed intuition, i.e. by a different kind of consciousness. Our usual consciousness is too absorbed by the sensations of the phenomenal world and by itself, and therefore does not reflect impressions coming to it from other consciousnesses, or reflects them so weakly that they are not fixed there in any intelligible form. Moreover, our consciousness does not recognise the fact that it is in constant communion with the noumena of all surrounding things, near and remote, and with consciousnesses like it, and those entirely different, with the consciousness of everything in the world, and of all the world. But if the impressions coming from another consciousness are so forceful that the consciousness feels them, then it immediately projects them into the outer world of phenomena and seeks for their cause in the phenomenal world, exactly in the same manner as the two-dimensional being inhabiting a plane, seeks in its plane for the causes of the impressions which come from a higher world. Our consciousness is limited by its paranormal receptivity, i.e. it is surrounded by itself. The world of phenomena, i.e. the form of its own perception, surrounds it as a ring or as a wall, and the ordinary consciousness sees nothing save this wall. But if consciousness succeeds in escaping out of this limiting circle, it will invariably see much that is new in the world. And Dispensky quotes, If we will separate self-elements in our perception, writes Hinton, A New Era of Thought, page 36-37, then it will be found that the deadness which we ascribe to the external world is not really there, but is put in by us because of our own limitations. It is really the self-elements in our knowledge which makes us talk of mechanical necessity, dead matter. When our limitations fall, we behold the spirit of the world like we behold the spirit of a friend, something which is discerned in and through the material presentation of a body to us. Our thought means are sufficient at present to show us human souls, but all except human beings is, as far as science is concerned, inanimate. One self-element must be got rid of from our perception, and this will be changed. End of quote. 
but is the unknowableness of the numinal world as absolute for us as it sometimes seems? In The Critique of Pure Reason and in other writings, Kant denied the possibility of spiritual sight. But in Dreams of the Ghost Seer, he not only admitted this possibility, but gave to it one of the best definitions which we have ever had up to now. He clearly affirms, and Dispensky quotes, I confess that I am very much inclined to assert the existence of immaterial natures in the world and to put my soul itself into that class of beings. These immaterial beings, dot, 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 are immediately united with each other. They might form, perhaps, a great whole which might be called the immaterial world. Every man is a being of two worlds, of the incorporeal world and of the material world, dot, dot, dot. And it will be proved, I don't know where or when, that the human soul also in this life forms an indissoluble communion with all immaterial natures of the spirit world, that alternatively it acts upon and receives impressions from that world, of which nevertheless it is not conscious while it is still man, and as long as everything is in proper condition, dot, dot, dot. We should, therefore, have to regard the human soul as being conjoined in its present life with two worlds at the same time, of which it clearly perceives only the material world, insofar as it is conjoined with the body, and thus forms a personal unit. Dot, dot, dot. It is therefore indeed one subject, which is thus at the same time a member of the visible and the invisible world, but not one and the same person. For on account of their different quality, the conceptions of one world are not ideas associated with those of the other world. Thus, what I think as a spirit is not remembered to me as a man, and conversely, my state as a man does not enter into the conception of myself as a spirit. Birth, life, death are the states of the soul only. Consequently, our body only is perishable. The essence of us is not perishable and must have been existent during that time when our body had no existence. The life of the man is dual. It consists of two lives, one animal and one spiritual. The first life is the life of man and man needs a body to live this life. The second life is the life of spirit. His soul lives in that life separately from the body and must live on in it after the separation from the body. End of quote. In an essay on Kant in The Northern Messenger, 1888, Russian, A. L. Volinsky says that both in Volesingen and also in Dreams of the Ghost Seer, Kant denied the possibility of one thing only, the possibility of the physical receptivity of spiritual phenomena. Thus Kant admitted not only the possibility of the existence of a spiritual conscious world, but also the possibility of communion with it. Hegel built all his philosophy upon the possibility of a direct knowledge of truth upon spiritual vision. Approaching the question of two worlds from a psychological standpoint, from the standpoint of the theory of knowledge, let us firmly establish the principle that before we can hope to comprehend anything in the region of noumena, we must define everything that is possible to define of the world of many dimensions by a purely intellectual method, by a process of reasoning. It is highly probable that by this method we can define very much. Perhaps our definitions will be too crude, will not quite correspond to the fine differentiation of relations in the numinal world. All this is possible and must be taken into consideration. 
Nevertheless, we shall define what we can, and at the outset make as clear as possible what the noumenal world cannot be, then what it can be, show what relations are impossible in it, and what are possible. This is necessary in order that our consciousness, coming in contact with the noumenal world, may discriminate between it and the phenomenal world, and what is more important, that it may not mistake simple reflections of the phenomenal world for the noumenal. We do not know the world of causes. We are confined in the jail of the phenomenal world simply because we do not know how to discern where one ends and where the other begins. We are in constant touch with the world of causes. We live in it because our consciousness and our incomprehensible function of the world are part of it or a reflection of it. But we do not see nor know it because we either deny it, consider that everything existing is phenomenal and that nothing exists except the phenomenal, or we recognise it but try to comprehend it in the forms of the three-dimensional phenomenal world. Or lastly, we search for it and find it not, because we lose our way amid the deceits and illusions of the reflected phenomenal world which we mistakenly accept for the noumenal world. In this dwells the tragedy of our spiritual questionings. We do not know what we are searching for. And the only method by which we can escape this tragedy consists in a preliminary intellectual definition of the properties of that of which we are in search. Without such definitions, going merely by indefinite feelings, we shall not approach the world of causes, or else we shall get lost on its borderland. Spinoza understood this, saying that we could not speak of God, not knowing his attributes. And Dispensky quotes, when I studied Euclid, I learned first of all that the sum of the three angles of a triangle was equal to the two right angles, and this property of a triangle was entirely comprehensible to me, although I did not know its many other properties. But so far as spirits and ghosts are concerned, I do not know even one of their attributes, but constantly hear different fantastic tales about them, in which it is impossible to discover any truth. End of quote. We have established certain criteria which permit us to deal with the world of noumena, or the world of spirits. These we shall make use of now. First of all, we may say that the world of noumena cannot be three-dimensional, and that there cannot be anything three-dimensional in it, i.e. commensurable with physical objects similar to them in outside appearance having form. There cannot be anything having extension in space and changing in time. And most important, there cannot be anything unconscious. In the world of causes, everything must be conscious, because it is consciousness itself, the soul of the world. Further on, we'll be given the properties of the world of causes. For the present, using only those definitions which we have, let us seek for it in everything surrounding us, and in ourselves. Let us remember also that the world of causes is the world of the marvellous, and what appears simple to us can never be real. The real appears to us as the marvellous. We do not believe in it, we do not recognise it, and therefore we do not feel the mysteries of which life is so full. The simple is only that which is unreal. The real must seem marvellous. The mystery of time penetrates all. It is felt in every stone, which perhaps might have witnessed the glacial period, seen the ichthyosaurus and the mammoth, it is felt in the approaching day, which we do not see, but which possibly sees us, which perchance is our last day, 
or on the other hand is the day of some transformation the nature of which we do not ourselves now know. The mystery of thought creates all. As soon as we understand that thought is not a function of motion, but that motion itself is only an illusion of thought, and shall begin to feel the depth of this mystery, we shall perceive that the entire phenomenal world is some gigantic hallucination, which fails to frighten us and does not drive us to think that we are mad simply because we have become accustomed to it. The mystery of infinity, the greatest of all mysteries, it tells us that all the visible universe and its galaxies and stars have no dimension, that in relation to infinity they are equal to a point, a mathematical point which has no extension whatsoever. But in positive thinking we must make the effort to forget all about this, not to think about it. At some future time, positivism will be defined as a system by the aid of which it was possible not to think of real things and to limit oneself to the region of the unreal and illusory. End of chapter 16